welcome to Chinese Revolutions, a podcast about how China came to be the way that it is today. We are looking at modern Chinese history through the frame of revolutionary Chinese movements from about 1839 to the present, and I am your host, Nathan Bennett. I lived in China for seven years, and this podcast is a love letter and a farewell letter to that country. Uh, the uh, Just the usual beginning stuff. Um, I am looking to get to about 100 page subscribers so I can start producing supplementary episodes like biographies of key people, technology, zooming in on special interest items. Um, you can also join the Substack for greater connection with the podcast. Uh, you'll hear more about that at the end of the episode. And you can always support the the podcast for free, rate and review it on all platforms. Like, just go across all platforms, rate it and review it, so that the algorithm, that fickle deity, uh, bestows its blessings upon, you know, our uh, listing. So, here we go. Uh, this episode, we're going to be talking about the East India Company and how it contributed to the beginning of the op the opium wars which are the uh the the critical event that are going to kick off the revolutionary era that we're going to be looking at uh so if you're asking why are things like this you know when something happens in the news it's almost too late to understand so here we're going to try to do better than that uh with this podcast so here we're going to go back a bit to answer the question of why the British government sent and was able to send military force to China in 1839. Why was that a viable option? Why was, you know, why was door-to-door -door from England to China a thing? Uh, so we'll look at the British company, the East India Company, the archetypal example of the evil big company with government power, military weaponry, etc., that was instrumental in getting this all started. Now, the East India Company, when the Opium Wars started, was well on its way out. So it, it wasn't just... So we'll get into the dynamics that were in play, but the East India Company was, was the bridge from from there to well it isn't here it's so the, the east india company is the bridge yeah. and um and so think about this as we learn about china um there were families and kinships kinship groups cooperating in china for trade there were you know cartels uh you know like different you know, different groups of people trading with each other, but there was nothing like the sophistication of modern finance and um, and trading companies like this so far in China. So the basic facts about the East India Company, some from Wikipedia here, uh, was founded in 1600, it, and it accounted for about half the world's trade during the mid-1700s uh, and the early 1800s. 
Um, it especially shipped basic commodities like cotton, silk, indigo dye, uh, sugar, salt, spices, saltpeter, which is especially important for gunpowder, tea, and opium. Like So when you look at uh, different uh, wars in, in history, whoever had the ability to keep their army supplied was the one who's going to win. So they're the ones who are bringing gunpowder to Britain. And Britain, like say during the Napoleonic Wars, they were supplying all of Europe with money, sometimes weapons, uh, but they were the ones really, really making sure that the people who were fighting Napoleon were able to keep at it. Uh, the book that is backing a lot of my understanding here is The Honorable Company by John Kay, K-E-A-Y. John Kay uh, wrote a number of books, one about China, another about India, and he's written a, a, a number of books about India. Um, I, ha I still have some on a list that I need to read, but John Kay is a fantastic off uh, author. So uh, under Elizabeth I, good old Queen Bess, uh, the East India Company was set up as a monopoly. Uh, Francis Drake returned from circumnavigating the world in 1580. You know, he was down uh, raiding Spanish colonies and uh, on the run from them, you know, uh, uh, we might as well just keep going. Um, and just, Eddie sailed round Cape Horn, over to Asia, and then back to England. Uh, he, th th that's, and he returned with riches from the east. So that opened the eyes of the monarch of England, maybe not quite how um, the later English bishop being burned at the stake hoped for the eyes of the English monarch to be opened, but that's... No, that was earlier. So, yeah, so first... Yeah, you know, when these obscure historical jokes occur to you, um, yeah, it doesn't always come out quite right. So, um, there was Latimer and Ridley, I believe, uh, they were being, uh, burned at the stake and one of them like prayed, you know, opened the eyes of the King of England. Um, well, the, uh, eyes of the Queen were opened here in a different way than... So 1591, uh, okay, so the, the the defeat of the Spanish Armada in 1588 uh, was a boost in English aspirations. So like, haha, we beat the the big uh, the the big sea power. Uh, 1591, an, an expedition sent to raid the Spanish and Portuguese around the uh, Malay Peninsula. So it's just like, okay, uh, we know they're out there on the other side of the world. So we're gonna send somebody to go raiding. Now, again, this is piracy, not you know, setting up colonies yet. In the 1590s, information captured from Spanish and Portuguese ships and the return of English adventurers brought more information about the Far East back to England. And then in 1599, okay, you, you have the royal charter to the Governor and Company of Merchants of London trading in, into the East Indies. 
1599 is when they get the the monopoly. Um, they had a monopoly on trade between England and the East, and so this this is partly to protect their investment and to make sure they get paid off, and it's also to keep out interlopers. You know, because you go to all the hard work of finding the trade routes, building the relationships and everything, and you don't want some geezer rolling up to say, hey, I'll, I'll do it 10% cheaper. Um, uh, the East India Company lobbied Parliament over decades to keep its monopoly. Uh, and you know, even through the interregnum period with Oliver Cromwell, they stayed in business. Uh, lo like loans to the government uh, helped them keep their their position. You know, in one reorganization in 1708, they loaned the they loaned the British government three million two hundred thousand pounds. That's like a company today loaning the government a trillion dollars, pounds, euros, just, just like, yeah, trillion dollars, here you go. Like, that, 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 is, that is not just an eye-watering amount of money, that is like, like, like a soul-crushing amount of money. Uh, keep in mind that Parliament, by this point in English history, had permanently taken the power of the purse away from the monarchy. So a critical difference between uh, Britain as a, a European power and the Qing Empire, that the finances were very, very different. Uh, Parliament needed to be coming up with money, and trade was how they were getting it. Um, what we're seeing is a purely modern corporate and government interaction where these where the power of a company to cough up money to support government operations uh, really goes into what the government is going to mandate that is going to happen so their now their monopoly for trade was with all the east not just india so a series of historical accidents centered it so firmly on India. Uh, India, incidentally, was where the money was, so that's where they invented, invested their efforts. Now, the official end of the monopoly in India was 1813, and the end of the monopoly for the East India Company for China was 1833. We'll come back to why the East India Company lost its China monopoly in 1833. Now, that's six years before our the uh, the date we cite in the opening of the podcast, 1839. Um, but we'll come back to that in some future episodes. Something to keep in mind about the East India Company, by the way. Okay, like, so, like, look at what's happening today. Companies in Silicon Valley got started with technology and money from the U.S. government. You know, back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, um, also, the internet was started as a military thing, uh, you know, because like if if you're wondering whether the uh, you know the, the nukes have launched yet, you need to get a lot of data really fast to be able to tell what to do. Well, the U.S. government uh, just forced through all the research and development dollars to get those technologies invented 
but then they released the technology to the private sector to develop other uses for it, develop the economy, develop the space sector. Uh, and then, then you think about Chinese companies supported by the Chinese government today. Well, it's a strategic necessity. China wants to have certain technologies in their country so that they don't have to rely on other countries to get to get those technologies like they're developing their own aerospace sector for fighter jets and uh they're uh, more independence for getting computer chips it's a strategic necessity so it's not just unfair competition it's about national security so the position of the east india company until the rest of the british economy trading around the world had fully matured to where this government supported uh, monopoly was necessary um and until the rest of the economy had matured this was a critical part of keeping britain independent keeping its economy strong uh the story of the east india company by the way is very dramatic like various isolated outposts setting up trade, piracy, conquest of chunks of India, you know, on and off, literal wars with the Dutch East India Company, the under the acronym VOC, uh, from from its name in Dutch. Uh, Protestant competition with the Catholic, Spanish, and Portuguese powers, and the British took South Africa from the Dutch, and eventually, you know, held as a you know, as a transit territory on the way to the east, uh, in a competition with the French. So, like the Seven Years' War, French and Indian War for you Americans like me, um, from 1756 to 1763, the French Revolution from 1789 to 1799, the Napoleonic Wars from 1803 to 1815, that extended to India as well. It was a bit different, but it was still an excuse to beat up on the French again. Uh, the like so if anybody wants to write a like space opera science fiction epic and you just and uh just use the history of the east india company and change the uh the names of the guilty um uh it, it it's all there it's all there many 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 volumes of good story are all there all the fascinating characters they're all it's all there drama too if you get in the the amboina massacre if you want a uh some scenes of just keening tragedy um okay so the country trade okay so this is where we really start to see where trade from from british traders other europeans really start where you see the connections happen that bring in where the go the british government is going to be making its decision to send a military force to china for the opium war so the country trade is any trade that began and ended east of the cape of good hope uh so it's by john kia the honorable company so you had to be in the East India Company to, you know, send a ship back and forth 
between England and the East. But if you wanted to sail back and forth between India, Malaysia, China, East Africa, Indonesia, you only needed to know what you were doing. The East India Company held a monopoly between Britain and the East, but if you were just doing your thing and not taking it all back to Britain, that was fine. A lot of the people who were doing this were fired or retired East India Company employees who'd start up their own businesses. And also, East India Company employees under the table or out in the open, they were doing their own business on the side. They didn't have smartphones to play with, so they were able to think of things. Like One of the things is, uh, the uh, monsoon winds would, you know, for one part of the year, blow you in this direction, and then for the other part of the year, blow you back in that direction. So do you just sit around for many weeks and months, or do you see if you can, you know, make a run over to this other place and bring some stuff back and you know, make some money, and you know, you're just going to sit there and let the ship sit there and rot. You know, wooden ships, they, they rot. So you might as well use them if you've got them. So, so between all that, there were just all these enterprising guys just just doing stuff. Oh, one, yeah, one thing I remember now, it's not in my notes, but it's, um, you would have a European captain with sailors from around, you know, Malaysian, Indian, Indonesian, uh, Southeast Asia, other Southeast Asian sailors. So th they were doing European business. They were just hiring local sailors. So the, uh, okay, let's see. So, you know, consider if you get fired from a job in the East India Company, it's not like you're just going to put the flight home on your credit card and work it off stocking shelves at the grocery store back home. So if you know some guys now uh, because you've been working for the East India Company and you know where to get this cheap and sell it expensively and buy something cheap while there and sell it back in the other place for a higher price and you know you can just make money that way, you're already over there, you've survived, you've not died like like the others, um, you might as well get to it. Um, there was all, okay, so there was running opium grown in British India to China, so there was both official East India ex East India Company exported opium and non e and non EIC stuff. Um, the the trade between India and China they considerably broadened the front along which European trade interacted with China. The East India Company paved the way, but then it outlived its usefulness and smaller, more nimble traders kept trade going. Uh, one of the things that the East India Company, uh, by the time of the Opium Wars, was working on, it needed to deal with a trade imbalance with China. They needed to make money from the trade and not just keep getting silver to trade into China for Chinese products. The one of the one of the things actually that the East India Company in India had to deal with was okay, they were getting revenue out of English no out of out of India they were getting revenue 
because like they they could collect taxes and fines and take gifts from local Indian rulers. And while that's all very nice, they could send it back to England. They weren't getting uh, raw materials or manufactured products. They weren't getting it from trade. They were just getting money. Uh, that's the so the the so as the East India Company was fighting for its bottom line, the country traders rode the you know rode this train and were part of the growing British commercial class. Uh, one interesting detail is that traders would actually act as consuls of various European powers to gain permission to stay in Canton, Guangzhou, um, but we'll get more into that when we get to that. We could do like a whole episode or two just on the foreign settlement of Guangzhou, Canton. The, uh, the Qing actually forbade European women from living there, so they like so guys who had wives would have to leave them back in Portuguese Macau. Um, but we'll we'll get to that. So to wrap up here, the East India Company found the markets and tapped or built the trade routes between Britain and the East, and their monopoly, uh, partly because it was so valuable to the British government, was preserved because they wanted to make back their investments in lives and in money and ships. Finding all that, the British government's need for money and the East India Company's ability to get it meant that the EIC kept their monopoly, the British government had a vested interest in supporting trade. Country traders were opportunistic and entrepreneurial hangers-on for the East India Company official operations, but they uh, they expanded commercial operations in the East, and we're going to see them become influential back in Britain in their own right, not just you know the East India Company having money. These guys started to have money, and they started to you know offer other stocks and other companies. Uh, in, you know, on the London stock market. And, you know, the government being interested in its own revenue, um, if the East India Company ceases to deliver, they'll move on to the next one who can. Uh, one, if you look at the American Civil War, one thing about President Lincoln is, okay, he would often make promises to generals and then break them if the general wasn't delivering. It's like, yeah, I don't care what promise I made. If you don't defeat the enemy, you're out. So the East India Company, it was no longer the coolest kid on the block. So it uh, passes out of our story. So if you'd like to support the podcast, you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast. C is in Chinese, R is in revolutions buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast or subscribe to the substack where you can go behind the scenes get uh, stories of you know how all this came together stories from my time in china uh and then also 
please uh, do write in uh, Chinese Revolutions at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. What did I get wrong? What did I get right? Any shameless flattery, I'd be happy to hear it. And so uh, we'll be back again next week for more on the story of how England was trying to make connections to China and for various reasons it wasn't working. Bye for now.